This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 51 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. And in this episode, we're not talking about something that's directly polar and directly Arctic, but certainly has many implications for geopolitics and uh, also is very much related to a, a major Arctic state, that being Russia. And uh, what we're going to be talking about in this episode is the recent uh, destruction of the Karkova Dam and its implications for uh, nuclear power uh, safety and electricity generation, uh, specifically at the Zaporizhia nuclear power station uh, nearby that was dependent upon that dam for the uh, reservoir that um, was used for cooling. And we'll also actually bring in uh, general nuclear issues uh, that uh, are specifically Arctic-related as well a little bit later on in the podcast. But I think it's going to be a really fascinating discussion on something that's super current, uh, super uh, important, kind of one of the central issues of the uh, war in Ukraine. And to talk about this, we actually have somebody who's a colleague of mine who happens to be one of the leading experts on exactly these kind of issues on the relationship between water and nuclear energy. His name is Akim Klippelberg. He is a PhD candidate at the Nuclear Waters Project. It's a European Research Council project based at the Division of History of Science, Technology and Environment at KTH, Royal Institute of Technology here in Stockholm. And as I said, Akim is a colleague of mine at that uh, same department. And uh, Akim, very nice to have you here in the studio. I know you've been listening to a lot of the podcasts that I've been involved with over the years, the uh, the coronavirus um, podcast and uh, the Sphere podcast and, and the Polar Geopolitics podcast. Well, great to have you here in the studio to talk face-to-face about something that you're a real uh, leading expert on. So uh, welcome to the studio. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Eric, for having me. Super nice to be here. Yeah, and it seems like your your uh, your expertise and your the project you're involved with the nuclear waters is perfectly positioned for this for this moment. Uh, you guys have been working on this for a number of years now, but uh, now it comes out that these things are very intimately related: water and nuclear energy, and uh, in a very concerning way. In the current case of the destruction of the uh, Karkova Dam and the nearby uh, nuclear power plant that uh, depended upon the reservoir that that dam created. Cooling. So um, the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency has uh, said there is no immediate concerns, but uh, we want to dig deep into that and see actually what the short, medium, and long-term concerns are after what uh, what happened there. Because the, as far as I understand, the uh, the nuclear power station is still operational. It's still making energy, and uh, so the, the reactors are still running. So perhaps, and we're also going to look at this from a historical perspective as a legacy of the Soviet Union and bringing this sort of broader um, issue of uh, interdependency between uh, Ukraine and Russia on nuclear energy and infrastructure and hydropower and, and other associated aspects. So, so Akim, tell us a bit, um, what is the current concern right now when it comes to this, this dam burst, when it comes to the nuclear power plant? Okay, regarding the nuclear power plant, the major concern is the provision of cooling water. And we have to see that uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is the largest nuclear power plant in terms of capacity in Europe. It features uh, six reactor blocks, VVER 1000s. And luckily, five of them have already been shut down. But the sixth one, it's still kind of in a, well, it's already, it's also shut down now. But the, the difference is the fuel assemblies, they are still inside the sixth one. 
But uh, one to five, they've already removed them and put them into the storage pools. Um, so this is a very fortunate situation for us because then um, these fuel elements do not need as much cooling water as if they would be fully operating at full capacity. But that being said, they still need cooling water. They need a steady supply. And another fortunate thing is that after Chernobyl in 1986, Zaporizhia got updated. So they actually have calculated with a, a loss of coolant situation like this. And if you look on a map, you see that Zaporizhia has a cooling pond, which is actually built inside the Kachovka Reservoir. So there's like a dam separating the cooling pond from the reservoir. And that gives us a little bit of time. And I've read estimates that we are speaking about month here. So eventually, a new solution for cooling water needs to be found to assure that these fuel assemblies can be cooled because um, they cannot be removed. We are still in a war situation there, um, also at the nuclear power plant. So the thing is that as the dam has burst, the water levels in the reservoir will fall and they will fall even more. Um, I've also read now that we are already reaching the so-called dead zone. So that means that... Um, Yeah, for example, the power plant cannot actually take new water in from the reservoir directly, so it only can take in from the cooling pond. So now we are faced with uh, several options. One is to lay a new pipe, um, but then we have to see how wh what will be the new stable situation for the Dnieper, for the big river that actually flows inside the reservoir since um, the water levels will be falling. Um, the reservoir's shape will change. And that, of course, I've, I've heard an estimate from Anna Veronika Wendland, a scholar working on Ukraine. Um, and she estimated that maybe it, such a pipe would, would have to bridge a distance of three kilometers. That would be one solution. Another solution could be to dig into the groundwater levels, to dig new wells and get water from there. Um, but all of this is at the moment a little bit science fiction because we have such a stern um, military situation that I do not see the scenario that either the Russians or the Ukrainians or the IAEA actually can work there. How do you conduct work of this sort um, at the nuclear power plant while there's shelling going on, while Russian troops are on site at the power plant? Um, there are reports that parts of the facilities are being used from the military, from the Russian military. So how do you go from there? So at the moment, the power plant is fairly stable. But in a time frame of several months, we are running into the risk that there is uh, not enough cooling water. And that is a major problem. So another thing is electricity supply. And also for diesel generators, you also need um, a certain amount of cooling water and cooling supplies. So we had in the past several situations in which electricity was cut. And these diesel generators actually had to work. And this is putting simply another... Um, very stern problem onto the personnel on site, which actually has to deal with these problems under very difficult situations. So we are not facing a direct threat of like a, yeah, a new Chernobyl, but there could be a situation very serious um, in the upcoming month. So the Russians are in control of this facility, the, uh, the, the power station, the nuclear power station, but there's Ukrainian engineers that are still yeah. operating this. Are they... Do you think, I, mean, I guess it's impossible to know exactly, but is there some sort of coordination, some sort of cooperation to find some solution? And do you think that 
I mean, when this dam was burst, I mean, we can only assume it was the Russians. They deny it, but uh, we assume, assume it's the Russians. Um, was there a, a plan? Or did they, is this something that the Russians just did without sort of thinking what, you know, two or three steps beyond what happens next with, with dealing with this, this nuclear reactor? Obviously, they knew that these things were intimately connected. Okay, so I see two parts in your question. The first one with the local operators. And um, there is a town called Energodar or Enehodar. And in this town, um, as the name already suggests, um, a lot of opera um, people who work at the nuclear power plant, but also at the thermal power plant close by, they live there. And it's, of course, an occupied town. Um, there are, of course, also the effects of war to be seen there. And the personnel is also um, under severe stress. So in order to safely run a nuclear power plant, you need safety routines. You need to have um, a rotation of personnel. They have to be basically uh, on times, like times when they are on duty and when they are off duty. And at the situation now, they're under a lot of stress and there's basically hardly any off time. And of course, um, it's Ukrainian personnel there. Um, there are also some Russians coming in from Rosenergoatom, but the, the bulk of the duty is being done by Ukrainian yeah, workers, scientific, technical, personal on site. So far, they have been um, very much dedicated to keep the plant running and safe under very difficult circumstances. I mean, the plant has been shot at. There have been fires. There have been uh, very close by attempts, um, for example, from the Ukrainian military to, to actually get over to the Russian side, like across the reservoir and, and do some sort of landing or probing landing with some military forces. Um, so it's definitely, definitely not an ideal situation for them. I have no clue whether they really coordinate with the Russians. They have to coordinate in some form to assure, for example, the water supply, to assure, um, to also make a plan. Like, for example, until recently, until the burst of the dam, the sixth reactor was still running to also procure um, district heating for Energoda, for example, um, and also a little bit of electricity. So if you cut this out, now, of course, this is gone, right? So there needs to be some sort of coordination. And now linking to your second question, um, it's very hard to, to, to answer. Um, I do not want to speculate that much. I think we don't know at the moment exactly what happened at the dam. I've seen reports about um, that that point towards explosions. So something has happened there. Um, it would make no sense from the Ukrainian side to blow up the dam. That's my personal opinion. On the other hand, I also am not convinced really that it would make sense from a Russian point of view. Um, there is the military expert from the Swedish military, Joachim Passivi, and he has said it was it, like that were the Russians, like that was his uh, point. And one argument for him was, okay, by producing the flooding, Kherson and all the area towards the Black Sea, that that basically would shorten the front line for Russia and making a, a naval, if you can call that invasion from Ukraine impossible. Well, that is true, but also... Uh, so much of the land that Russia has occupied and actually, well, at least from the Russian point of view, incorporated into Russia is also submerged. And also, and that is the biggest thing, actually, what keeps me thinking. There's the Crimean Canal that's actually linked to the reservoir. And that is the drinking water supply for Crimea. And 90% of drinking water in Crimea comes from or, or stems from this canal. So if you blow up the dam 
and pollute the water with all kinds of, um, well, dead organic matter. There, there has been an oil spill. There's, uh, you know, these sort of things. Then you, you threaten also the drinking water supply of the several million people who live in Crimea who also have been incorporated into the Russian Federation. On the other hand, Russia is super reckless in that regard. Um, yeah, but but at this moment, I, I cannot say who actually was behind that. I, I think there's not enough evidence to really say. Uh, I personally find the idea quite intriguing that it might have been some sort of negligence or accident. The first question is, why were there explosives in the first place? Um yeah, but but it it looks very weird to me. Yeah. So we can't assume that there's some sort of contingency plan that there is some sort of gaming this out that if we blow up the dam there's going to be the nuclear reactor and this radiation or the, if there's a potential meltdown in a few months it could affect the whole region. Mm -hmm. there, we can't assume that uh that there was actually a, there is a plan. That maybe it's just now a complete crisis management situation where there's no clear way forward. I mean, you say there's 5 out of the 6 reactors are shut down. Yeah. Uh, temporarily, but even those will need some fresh water yeah. intake yeah. For, for the cooling ponds. So in terms of contingency plan, once again, I cannot say anything definite here. I don't know. Um, it looks to me they don't have one. So whatever happened there was not made like in, in uh, close discussion with the nuclear power plant or the energy ministry or anything like that. So now we are facing an emergency situation at Zaporizhia. It's not emergency, emergency, but like I said, in the next month, we are running into big, big problems there. And the uh, General Secretary of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Matteo Grossi, he has actually proposed to, to create like a, a 30-kilometer non-militarized zone around the nuclear power plant to stabilize it. And that's a really, really good idea. And I think also um, the IAEA should take a, a stronger position here, if it can. Um, because I think you can only kind of protect this nuclear power plant if the military gets out of there and if there's some form of cooperation um, between diff not, not only Russia but also other countries. Um, because Russia is way too much into the war and that it's still a front line. Their main objective is not the nuclear power plant, it's like winning the war. If, if it was an intentional act, if it was not an accident, as you say, yeah. there's some small chance it could have been. It could have been an act of desperation uh, with no good uh, a lose-lose outcome that they basically had to pick one or the other of either facing this, this amphibious assault from Ukraine or mm. somehow making that more complicated by doing this pretty radical act of, of destruction, this act of ecocide, as, uh, as President Zelensky has caused. Maybe we won't go so much into the environmental aspects of this, but this certainly has many ecological implications. I mean, the, 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 the scenes there of the, of the drained reservoir, yeah. it's pretty shocking. It's something that you, you, just, you just don't tend to see. Um, but let's, let's talk about, about your, um, your dissertation, because this is exactly, I mean, your, your timing is perfect in some way. You could not have anticipated this when you started your dissertation research. But your, your dissertation is about the sort of the coevolution of, of hydropower and nuclear power in the Soviet Union and I guess the post-Soviet yeah. Union. Tell us a bit about that and, and how this is an example of exactly this, this uh, legacy. So one of my focus areas is actually Ukraine and the Dnieper River, or Dnipro, as it is called in Ukrainian. And the thing is that nuclear power in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in the Soviet Union had like a very strong 
impetus of being progressive, of being able to uh, provide lots of electricity, uh, too cheap to meter, as it was also called in the West. And before that era, hydropower actually had the same uh, nimbus, so to speak. And the first hydropower plant was uh, on the Dnieper River, was Dnieperstroy, and it was uh, started to be built in 1927 under the first five-year plan under Stalin, actually. And so there's also kind of a precedent to the situation we are having now, because in World War II, in August 1941, when the Germans attacked the Soviet Unions and were then also um, approaching the Dnieper, Stalin made the decision to blow up that dam to slow down the Germans. Um, eventually, the Germans went over the Dnieper and then were, of course, beaten at Stalingrad, and then it went back. And the Germans had rebuilt the power plant. And once they were in the reverse situation, they also blew up the, the dam yet again to stop the Red Army. Um, so that is an historic precedent to what is happening now. The second dam... Go back to that first dam. So yeah. Is that the same location as the uh, Karkova dam that was blown up recently? Or It is not. It is more further upstream. There is the town of uh, Zaporizhia in Ukrainian or Zaporozhia in, in Russian. And it's a little bit north of that town. The second dam of the so-called Dnieper Cascade, which is basically comprised of six hydropower plants along the, the Dnieper, that was Kachovka. And that is a very interesting one because here we have a different type of dam. While the first one was imagined um, to actually conquer the, the rapids in the Dnieper to make them useful and planable categories uh, for Soviet society, the second one also had in mind to facilitate the irrigation of steppe lands in the south, basically the area which is now occupied by Russia. And I've already pointed to the uh, Crimean Canal. There are also three others that basically irrigate um, the southern region, which is um, traditionally a steppe region. Um, and this region gets its water from the Kachovka Reservoir. And in that way, it enables actually the cultivation of plants there. If you take that water away, um, of course, uh, it will become a dry land yet again. The Ukrainian side, for example, fears that if, if this cannot be um, reinstalled in a way, that within one year, this could turn into a desert. And you spoke about ecocide. That would be one of those points. So what we then saw basically is the industrialization of the river, the um, creation of synergies between um, electricity supply, irrigation, uh, but also drinking water supply for um, a growing population along the industrial towns of the Dnieper that developed also Ukraine in a sense, industrialized Ukraine, has now of course, after 1991, when the Soviet Union dis dissolved itself, was still active. And now during the war, what we are seeing since uh, February 2022, uh, we are seeing um, that these dams apparently become a liability in warfare. And there is a similarity to the nuclear power plants because these are civil installations um, they are not really meant to be shot at or being blown up or, um, I mean, you, you you ask about contingency plans. I'm pretty sure somewhere must be a plan of what to do when it, such a dam breaks, but it has such fundamental impact, not only on, on the cities, but like if you look on a map, like a satellite map, you see the Kachovka Reservoir. It's so big. And now, I guess, if the dam is not repaired, 
the whole um, pathway of the Dnieper will change. The whole reservoir will change. The whole landscape will change. It's basically an unintentional or maybe intentional re-engineering of that landscape. And I really think this is not thought through, at least not from the military side in Russia. It sounds like an act of total, assuming that it was a, uh, an intentional act by the Russians, it seems like an act of total warfare. Yeah. And basically attacking not just electricity generation, but also, as you mentioned, irrigation, drinking water. I mean, it, what, a, what a blow to, to Ukrainian society. But even also some of these, these Russian areas like the Crimea, yeah. it, it seems like such a, such a massive act that was a decision made who knows how far in advance, how thought through this was. It's, uh, it's quite incredible. In some ways, it. Um, I mean, this was was very different. But in some ways, when you when we these images of of a empty reservoir of these dried um, lake beds, one thinks of the Aral Sea, which was also another act of the Soviet Union, which was part of the um, I guess the Stalinist attempt to grow cotton in the desert. Could you? Have, I mean, I'm not sure if that's something you know a bit about, but can you see any parallels between what happened to the Aral Sea and, and to this act? Two very different acts in some ways, both intentional, but uh, with maybe different logics to them. So the logic behind what happened in the Aral Sea, and the Aral Sea used to be one of the biggest uh, freshwater lakes in the Soviet Union, maybe even the world, um, was that... Um, <laughs> so if you, if you centrally plan your economy, and then you see that you have certain diff different climate zones because your territory is so big, as was the case in the Soviet Union, then you might see, hey, in Uzbekistan, for example, we can, we can grow lots of cotton, and that is way more economic than in other places. The only problem is we need more water because Uzbekistan is pretty dry land. So how do you do that? And they actually diverted rivers, um, the Amur and Sirdaya, which flow into the RSC, uh, if I remember correctly, and they have um, diverted them to irrigate fields, which was successful, which still is going on today, but they have not really thought about um, what happens to the Aral Sea because that lake actually has dried up. The whole ecosystem has collapsed and also many uh, local societies which lived off fishing, for example, or with the sea, uh, trade maybe, they have also collapsed in a way. And to mitigate that, the idea was to divert the big Siberian rivers, which flow basically from south to north towards the Arctic, and to divert them so that they could flow to the south to replenish the Aral Sea and so on. And that has proven to be impossible. But that was the idea. So the mindset behind was that um, the Soviets, the communists, that they could reshape the natural landscape without any limits, just to rationalize it. Um, the idea with the Dnieper Cascade in Ukraine, if we go back to that area, there is also the idea that um, the communists basically could rework the natural landscape, make it more productive, completely reach, change the flow of the river and so on. But it was on a way smaller scale and it was way more down to earth because actually they succeeded at least. Well, it, it's difficult to say. It depends on what kind of variables you use for your evaluation. But if I stick to what the Soviets wanted to achieve, they were successful with the Dnieper Cascade, generating electricity, facilitating irrigation, and facilitating industrialization of these areas. And they succeeded in that. Now, what we have now is, of course, a situation of war, and there is no such thinking behind that. 
I think we are past that thinking of being able com to completely reshape the uh, natural surroundings, at least in that scale. But what we certainly see from a Russian side is the total disregard to these, let's say, softer consequences apart from war. Many people now throw out a lot of harsh terms, but certainly it is a war crime to blow up such a dam and to endanger so many civilians, to drown so many civilians, and also in your own territory. And even if I'm taking up the Russian mindset here or like try to to imagine what that would be. I mean, they have also handed out passports to people who applied in these occupied regions. So technically, they would be Russian citizens. Yeah, so then they are also harming them. And and why would they do that? And you have already said um, act of desperation. or an, I wouldn't say it's an act of des desperation. But if it was intentional, it was definitely with the aim of bettering the Russian um, military situation. And at that cost... That is, of course, very harsh. Um, and I guess in the West, uh, we are not used anymore to that kind of thinking. It's like Second World War thinking. So you do see a continuity then with these, this, the Soviet mindset and sort of these, all these major engineering projects of, of the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and the context around World War II and the sort of what you're willing to do under certain circumstances. You see, you see a certain continuity of Soviet Russian thinking from from the, the early Stalin era, maybe even the early mm. Bolshevik era, up until the present. Yeah. It's, of course, a difficult question. First, I think Russia is not the Soviet Union. So Russia has also developed. Uh, more than 30 years have passed um, between the dissolution of the Soviet Union. That being said, the people in power have been socialized in the Soviet Union. And Putin, I mean, has famously said himself, the biggest geopolitical catastrophe of 20th century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And it's also very clear that he um, yeah, sees himself in a position to claim imperial ambitions again, um, to see Ukraine as being a Russian land. He's also contradicting himself here, of course, because in the past he has signed um, contracts with Ukraine, um, basically acknowledging the national sovereignty of Ukraine. In that regard, I would say no. It's not a direct link to a Soviet mindset. There is no communism behind it. There is no socialism. There is no idea to build a new state or a world revolution. It's more like um, the will for total mobilization or like the will to, to if you want to, to reach your goal, you're willing to do whatever it takes in a sense, but in a very cynic sense, which is very based on power and brutal... Um, approaches towards the military and towards civilians, towards the um, environment. No, I would rather link it more to imperial Russia. Um, also, if you look at the symbol symbolism, um, Putin uses the, the sort of speech. Yeah, I mean, these people were socialized in the Soviet Union. They also got their uh, professional training in the Soviet Union. You cannot erase that, of course. But um, the big lack I see there is like the, the, the overall idea. Like Putin doesn't really have an idea. He now tries to use nationalism, which is not working. Or maybe it is working, but then it's... I mean, how can you claim that Ukraine is part of Russia, that Ukrainians would be part of his empire, and then you, you do all these sort of things? Um, and that's a mismatch. So I'm not sure how much Sovietness actually is in Russia. It's Yeah, it looks to me more like Putin 
has decided to go on a ruthless path in that regard to um, make sure Ukraine does not end up in NATO. To and, and if it does, then only in a very reduced form that basically renders Ukraine impossible to, to be a threat to Russia. He definitely wants to secure Crimea, the access to the Black Sea. And um, the question is, how much is he willing to put into that? And it looks like uh, a lot. Be very speculative to ask, but um, what what would he be willing to put into this? I mean, we were talking about nuclear energy mm. and the weaponization of water, maybe even sort of nuclear blackmail at Zaporizhia. Um, how far do you think? I mean, from your knowledge of Russia, I mean, you speak Russian, you've been studying Russia for many years. How far do you think someone like Putin and his cohort are willing to go to achieve their goals? So I have to go back a little bit in the past. I think there was a, a window of opportunity where Putin and also the entourage around him was actually pretty open towards the West. I mean, he famously spoke in German in the uh, Bundestag uh, in Germany, like the parliament, um, basically uh, offered a hand, a reconciliation. Um, and at that time, Germany, but also the West, refused, more or less. I mean, there was eco economic uh, trade going on. Um, Nord Stream, for example, is, of course, the most obvious of um, these developments. But Russia was nevertheless not able to be become part of like whatever it could be in the European sense, for example. It was held at an arm's length. And Russia, Russia has repeatedly said that it, it perceives itself to have security interests in many areas. There's, of course, the NATO expansion to, towards the east. There was the Kosovo War before that, which is also flaming up right now a little bit. There's tension going on again. And there was in 2008 already a very important um, situation going on in which um, it was up for debate whether Georgia, the Caucasus Republic, and Ukraine could join NATO. And Russia said, no, this is like a red line. And if you remember 2008, there was also a war between Russia and Georgia. To be fair, Georgia attacked Russia here. So Georgia started the war. But it's more complicated than that because there is uh, South Ossetia, there and uh, it's backed by russians there's um, abkhazia which is another region uh, uh, of georgia which wants to be independent and is recognized by by russia so there's a lot of meddling going on but nevertheless there was that war and for the ukraine actually france and germany vetoed the application towards nato because of russia and now if you fast forward to now we basically have a continuation of tension we have uh, the Euromaidan at the end of 2013-14, which then, of course, ousted a pro-Russian government with Yanukovych and installed um, the predecessor of Zelensky's government here and a very clear pro-Europe, pro-NATO orientation. And um, Putin perceives this as a stunt from the West, as basically the West encroaching upon Russian territory. Of course, what has he gained now? I mean, he has gained exactly the opposite. Finland and Sweden um, have or are about to join NATO. Um, there is, of course, now a threat at the border of Russia. There is a war going on. So basically, he has the worst case scenario that he wanted to prevent. But nevertheless, I think that was more the rationale behind that. So how ruthless is he? I think he's afraid or maybe he's not afraid, what, what do I know what he thinks? But one thing he's very about is like domestic protests. 
So this is also why he cracked down so harshly on anyone. If you remember the pictures of people holding up a blank white sheet without any slogans and still getting detained, for example, or, of course, Alexei Navalny, the most uh, prominent opposition politician who actually got imprisoned. We have people who have disappeared, of course. Um, and I think he is afraid that something like the Euromaidan could happen in Russia as well. So that is one thing. And the other is this grand geopolitical game. And for that, he seems to be very committed with one caveat, and that is he's still not declaring total mobilization of the Russian society. He still tries to, to uphold like a, an image of normality. Um, there was a partial mobilization, but not everyone was basically taken into the military. Um, there are also military exercises going on in the Far East. So he has still not deployed all his troops in Ukraine. Um, and at the same time, we are seeing what's happening in Ukraine. We, have, we, we are seeing the attacks on energy infrastructure of different kinds. We are seeing the attack, of course, of yeah, where people live, of cities, of where civilians live. And regarding to nuclear, I don't really think the Russians want to use an exploding nuclear power plant for anything. They would be suffering the same as Ukraine would suffer. Nobody would win from that. That would be a horrible situation. And I mean, the Russians also suffered from Chernobyl. Chernobyl is also a, a term in Russia, of course, right? But what they certainly do, they play with the fear in the West for that. And also, for example, stockpiling ammunition and guns on the facility, uh, on site at Zaporizhia. So, of course, to prevent the Ukrainians from shelling it, because they know the Ukrainians don't want to contaminate their whole land, right? So, in that regard, yes, but I don't think that he's basically planning or having some sort of idea to then, okay, if I cannot hold the, the military line, then we will blow up the nuclear power, uh, power station. I don't think that scenario. Or the scenario of using tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine? Well, um, maybe there are people who are more qualified to answer to that. I think nuclear weapons are mostly political weapons. As soon as you use them, they have actually no value. The problem is for Ukraine that they have uh, handed over their nuclear weapons in 1994. And they have done so ironically um, against safety or security guarantees that also Russia guaranteed. So if they would still have kept those nuclear weapons, probably they would be in a way better situation right now. Because um, Ukraine is not in NATO, Ukraine is not in the EU. The thing is, the West cannot use nuclear weapons because Russia would retaliate, and the other way around. But the big question is, would the West really use nuclear weapons and total annihilation if Russia would use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, against Ukraine? And this I can cannot answer. But then once again, what would they win from that? Technical nuclear weapons, they have, of course, a, a huge blast effect. You can, of course, obliterate quite a big chunk of the enemy's army. But then that land is contaminated. Then you have destroyed everything and for the foreseeable future. So if you want to take over the land, especially agricultural land, and that's what Ukraine basically is. It's a breadbasket, right? Um, growing wheat, for example, growing um, barley and other kinds of, of grains. You would destroy all that. I mean, we, we are seeing now with Kachovka, 
that apparently the Russian military is willing to destroy everything what is supposed to be conquered. But I, w I find it, I personally think it's very, um, I, I don't think they will use tactical nuclear weapons. They will threaten that though, but that would be madness, but I don't know. Often very difficult to, to really understand Russian uh, Russian thinking on, on on a number of issues. But you mentioned uh, Chernobyl, and that was a big concern early in the yeah. war. That, that was actually occupied within the first few days of, of Russia's invasion. Uh, what's the situation in Chernobyl now? So what happened in the beginning was basically before Russia invaded, there was a military exercise going on also north of Chernobyl. So basically the troops um, turned south towards Chernobyl. If you look on the map... It is a significant point if you are coming from Belarus, if you want to reach Kiev. That being said, of course, the territory surrounding Chernobyl is contaminated. I mean, there's the 30-kilometer zone. Um, especially the Belarusians know a lot about that, um, but also the Russians. And then what they did, they once again used the station as some sort of base. They famously dug trenches in the Red Forest, a very contaminated part of the surrounding area. Um, they looted um, a lot of equipment at the power plant, computers, for example. And apparently, and that was very astounding to me, they didn't tell the troops on the ground what they were digging in. So people were actually suffering of radiation sickness and then fled that area again. So what happened, they totally um, disrupted the routines, the safety routines at Chernobyl. Uh, all four, well, one exploded, but the three remaining reactors are shut down and in the pro are being in the process of being decommissioned. Um, Chernobyl is a huge research facility nowadays for the effects of ionizing radiation on different materials, but also the environment. Also, how a landscape that got contaminated in that way can recover or not. How radiation redistributes or radioisotopes redistributes around an area. And... Yeah, all of all of that has been disrupted severely. There's also nuclear waste stored there. And there's also a need to still provide some water for cooling. Um, and that has to continue. So they did not disrupt that, but they definitely disrupted the, the, the usual routine of the people working there, the safety routines. I mean, how, how can you um, hold up safety routines in regards to radiation, the frequent washing, for example, changing of clothes and gear, while you're basically held at gunpoint um, from soldiers who clearly have no understanding of the dangers they could be facing there. And also in a scenario of looting, I've seen some pictures at that time where um, the personnel on site had to stay in certain facilities, very small, very narrow rooms, very crowded, and then they had to be there for quite some time, conduct their job. They could not go out of the zone. Usually most of them live in Slavutic, which is a, a newly founded town after 1986, which uh, serves as worker space. And usually you commute there also to reduce um, the amount of radioactivity you are exposed to while working. And that, of course, was not possible. Um, since Russia has not attempted to attack from the north again, since that episode, it was possible to restore some of the normality there. But of course, Kiev fights more or less for its life. And they have other um, very urgent matters right now to, to pull their resources to. So it's far from an ideal situation there. Um, yeah, but there's, apart from the already dispersed radiation at Chernobyl, I think uh, there's no immediate danger there. 
that could go on. So, Akim, do you think there's any other damn nuclear dynamics, any other facilities, locations that we need to be concerned about if, if let's say, this was done intentionally by the Russians? Could it happen someplace else? Is, is this a new weapon of war that could have other catastrophic implications? So since we have seen that such a dam breach can happen, it can also, of course, happen at the other dams of the Dnieper Cascade. And here the Kiev hydropower plant or the Kiev dam comes to mind. And that is located the city of Vyshkorod or Vyshorod, a couple of kilometers north of um, Kiev. And if that dam would be blown up or breached, then, of course, the capital could suffer tremendously from all the water that flows uh, into the streets, into the buildings, into into everything. And that would threaten the Ukrainian capital. So Ukraine actually um, would need to, to, to take precautions against that, I guess. Or the other question is, can Russia actually reach that dam? That's another one. That being said, there is an author called Raman Subrivsky, and he has written about radioisotopes from Chernobyl that actually traveled across the Dnieper, and some of them have accumulated on the floor, on the on the floor of the river, of the floor of the reservoir, also in the Kiev reservoir. And these radioisotopes, if such a breach could occur, would of course be also redistributed along the Dnieper, and thus causing also a different sort of of threat. Um, because these radioisotopes, if incorporated into the human body, for example, if you drink contaminated water or if it comes on your food or something, um, some of them, they look like, to the body, look like um, normal um, pieces to in incorporate into your bone structure, for example, or into your thyroid. And if these radioisotopes instead become incorporated, you run the risk of getting sick, of course. And that is also a dimension which maybe has not yet been voiced in these discussions. Now, I don't know in regard of Kachovka and that reservoir how much this is a thing. Subrivsky once again writes that also along all the dams across the Nepal Cascade, you see similar things. Um, so I assume there will also be something going on like that in that regard. But how severe that is, I cannot judge. So this dam that's, that's upstream of Kiev, that's not under Russian control at this point. This would have to be destroyed through bombing or artillery or something like that. No, it's definitely not under. It's, it's under Ukrainian control, very firm control. Initially, Russia has tried to invade Kiev also from the north. Um, coming through Chernobyl, that has failed. So the only way at the moment Russia could do this would be with a special operation of secret services on the ground. It could be also with rockets or with a bombardment, um, with planes. I mean, Belarus um, has hosted many um, locations from which Russia has actually shot lots of missiles into Ukrainian territory, also from Russian soil. So this basically happens continuously in the background anyway. Um, and up to my knowledge so far, the dam has been avoided as a target. Um, but this is a, I, I see it as a very realistic threat. And um, I'm pretty sure the Ukrainians will do anything they can to, to get air defenses up there and um, to prevent such an event, especially now from what we see in the south at Kharkovka. Once again, assuming the Russians were behind the Kharkovka uh, destruction, 
I guess it's also a way to, to force Ukraine to redeploy forces to, to protect infrastructure. I mean, as, as a, if it's now an open game on infrastructure in this, in this war, I guess the Ukrainian military has to really step up its security in many different facilities, whether it's dams and nuclear power stations and so forth. Do you think that could perhaps be a, a part of the, the, the logic behind this destruction? Yeah, once again, I'm not, I, I don't know yet who actually did that for sure. If we assume it were the Russians, then yes, they definitely have that effect on the Ukrainian military. Ukraine will have to deploy um, troops to secure crucial infrastructure um, facilities such as these dams, but also to provide assistance to the local population south of the dam or further downstream, which are now facing horrible conditions with flooding. And I mean, after floods, there come the diseases and, and probably pandemics, or hopefully not. But um, yeah, so so there will be, uh, that will be an additional stress on the Ukrainian forces, that's for sure. What speaks still against that is that also on the Russian side, the Russians also face similar problems, and also face the problems of diseases of uh, contamination of um, pollution of water resources drinking water resources and like i've mentioned before crimea also uh, is dependent upon the water supply from the crimean canal and you are also jeopardizing that so um, this is complicated uh, in in that sense so yes the ukrainian military like pasikivi for example said can shorten the front line can deploy more troops than, for example, in the Zaporizhia re region, where Ukraine has started to retake a um, couple of villages at uh, Balshaya Novosiolovka um, and also in the Bakhmut region, at least a little bit of territory there. Not Bakhmut itself, but like north and south of it. Yeah, sure, that happens, but at the same time, you strain your own forces with having to cope with this disaster in a more catastrophic or catastrophe-preventing way. And also you, you're risking your own drinking water supply, which doesn't really sound intelligent to me in that regard. Just thinking about another potential motive for, once again, if it was the Russians that did this, um, the Ukrainians, I think they took responsibility even for this attack on the, the bridge to uh, Crimea mm -hmm. some months ago. And then, of course, there was the Nord Stream pipelines yeah. uh, being destroyed. And there's been recent reports in the Wall Street Journal saying that it was actually the Ukrainians that did this. And we don't we have no way of knowing if that's true or not. But that's it's out there in the news at the moment. Um, could perhaps that be some sort of revenge, basically saying, well, if you're going to attack our bridges and our pipelines, we're going to attack your infrastructure as well. Could that be a, a potential motive for this so once again i don't know who actually is behind the explosions in Nord stream one and two um for the kerch bridge that's for sure the ukrainians that also has been claimed by ukraine up to my knowledge um and i think your your thought in this regard is very smart and it also has historic predecessors um, this could very well, if the Russians really were behind blowing up that dam, that could be some form of retaliation. I think you can correlate news items in the West, for example, with additional weapon deliveries or new systems or something like that with Russian military's actions on the ground, with the bombardment of civil infrastructure, with the bombardment of dams, for example, in this regard, or not, or other, well, not dams in that sense, but like um, the electricity grids surrounding them, 
or thermopower plants, for example. So yes, this this would be a re reasonable rationale how to explain that. Um, but still, they are cutting themselves in the leg here. <laughs> like um, still, I'm hesitant to really call it like that. Um, but we we might know or we might never know who did it. But yeah, most people say it were the Russians, at least around here. And um, if that's true, it could be seen as retaliation, definitely, definitely. Now, you also mentioned earlier that uh, during World War II, uh, as, the, uh, as the Germans crossed the Dnieper River, uh, the Russians blew up the dams there, and twice these dams have been destroyed in, in during World War II and rebuilt. Is that a scenario that you could see, potentially, that this dam could be rebuilt somewhat rapidly to um, restore the reservoir and so forth? Or is that uh, just under the current circumstances uh, not an option? So what happened in the Second World War was, of course, the clash of two totalitarian countries, uh, full scale in war mode, total mobilization on both sides, fighting for life and death, basically. I think the scale we are seeing in Ukraine is, of course, severe and heavy, And for Ukraine, it is a total war, but it's not for Russia, at least not yet. And um, sure, dams can be repaired if there's uh, the political will and the resources to do that. And sure, Ukraine can do that and Russia as well. But at the situation right now, which still looks like a more like World War One kind of scenario with like a stalemate, more or less. It's not really a stalemate, but like trench warfare going on. I don't see that you can safely do that because the one side of the river is held by Ukraine, the other one by Russia. Both are shooting at each other across that. That would mean an, yeah, probably international agreement that you stop fighting in that area, that rebuilding can take place. And how the Germans did it, that was, of course, was forced labor. They used uh, basically slaves in that sense. They enslaved the local population and forced them to work there under horrendous costs for humans. And, and the Soviets did it a little bit better, but still, um, I, I'm not sure this can be done today. I don't think Ukraine is willing to do that. I don't think Russia can actually do that. So, yeah, if, if people would turn towards peace, this can be rebuilt and the damage repaired and things can be restored. That's for sure. But I don't see that will, at least not from the Russian side and the Ukrainian side as well, because they want to take back their territories As soon as they would accept the status quo, they would accept giving away, what is it, 20% of the territory with Crimea and everything. Um, that would be the end probably of Zelensky as a politician in Ukraine. Like that would be the end of his career. And the Russians don't seem keen on ending anything. So, no, I don't, I don't think we are having that scenario. I think that's, that's not probable. I just brought it up in the beginning because it is a historic predecessor at this river with um, also another dam of the Dnieper Cascade. Now, the interface of uh, history and geography is in, in infrastructure, history of technology as well is uh, super fascinating, and you've done a great job of, uh, of explaining these issues. Let's talk a bit about, um, I mean, we've been talking, but let's uh, maybe uh, identify it as, as sort of an issue of um, legacies and, and interdependencies from the Soviet era, because Chernobyl was a Soviet facility, yeah. the The uh, Karkovka Dam was a Soviet facility, the uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power facility. So a lot of the expertise, a lot of the materials even, and a lot of the, the engineering uh, that basically these facilities are is Soviet. And is there continues to be any sort of interdependency about maintaining these facilities in terms of 
access to, whether it's uh, uranium and forms of knowledge and materials that uh, we see here in these situations? We're seeing a fundamental change. Um, so what the Soviets did, they closely entangled their nuclear system with that of Eastern Europe and especially also with Ukraine, which was then part of the Soviet Union. So, of course, Chernobyl, Zaporizhia, South Ukraine, uh, Rifne or Rovno and Khmelnytsky, those nuclear power plants are Soviet nuclear power plants or Soviet built, Soviet, uh, the, the concepts were made in the Soviet Union. They are Soviet reactors. And if you are operating a nuclear power plant, you have many steps you have to take into account. It's not only the reactor. You have to, of course, provide uranium. This uranium has to be processed into fuel elements. Then they get into the reactor and then those have to be cooled and then sent away for either reprocessing or for waste storage. And all the Union republics that were nuclearized in that way, they were all um, entangled together. And there is the big um, reprocessing facility in Mayak in the Urals and also spent nuclear fuel from Ukraine went back there. Um, also, Russian uranium was used in Ukrainian nuclear power plants. But since this conflict is now already very old, at least 2013, you could also say maybe 2008, Ukraine has also tried to diversify here to get Westinghouse on board, uh, U.S. companies to update some reactors, to experiment with Western-made fuel, to get alternative sources and so on. But the big bulk was still um, close cooperation with Russia and Rosatom. One interesting thing is also language. Um, in which language do you operate your nuclear power plant? And Russian used to be a dominant language. And uh, the Ukrainians actually made a good effort in becoming fully nuclearized nations themselves. I mean, their energy share uh, is also fairly uh, big in the nuclear department. And they also have, of course, Ukrainian speaking experts now. So it, what we are seeing is the acceleration of a detachment process. So in the 90s, it was still very closely connected with Russia, early 2000s as well. Then it starts to disentangle uh, Ukraine turns more towards the West. And now with military hostilities, this is an abrupt change. Technically, Ukraine has only, if they don't want to cooperate with Russia, they would have to majorly reconfigure their nuclear system and uh, integrate it way more with the West. For example, with France, with the United Kingdom, with the United States, um, and maybe other nuclear countries. But um, this is very difficult, very costly. And on this, I'm not an expert, but also there are technical difficulties to this. Like I said, they are Soviet-made reactors. Um, you have to have a specific configuration for the fuel elements. And all of that has, of course, a path dependency that stems from Russian times. But I don't think there's a, a go back. Like even if there would be an armistice and then a peace at some stage, and that will be the future. I mean, every war ends eventually. I think Ukraine will not cooperate with Russia anymore if it can. Let's also, I mean... The logic of, of cooperating with Russia, I mean, you mentioned 2008 as being a watershed, the the war with Georgia and so forth. But even Western countries were cooperating with Russia even yeah. after that. And, and to me, I was always quite shocked by that, that how could Nord Stream yeah. 1 and 2 be built after 2008, after keep on being dependent upon Russia after 2014? But the interdependencies with Russia, 
How do they keep on coming back? The countries put themselves in this relationship of dependency in Russia, major things like energy supplies, even after these various issues. And let's say when, when and if this, this war ends, what will you think the best way for the West and Ukraine to engage with Russia if, if there's some sort of complete decoupling, cutting of ties? Would that, would that trigger other concerns of, of, a, of a isolated and wounded Russia that might turn more to China, as it, it's already very much doing. What do you see as a way forward in that situation is to reduce dependency, but maybe also not alienate Russia forever? So we have to understand that the nuclear lifespan, so what conventionally is called nuclear fuel cycle, like uranium mining, processing, the reactors, electricity generation, heat generation, reprocessing, uh, waste, waste storage, um, that all these things are, at least in Europe, very international. And most countries do not have all capacities for that within their own territory. Russia has it, but that's an exception. A country like Sweden, for example, is dependent upon uranium imports, is dependent upon certain forms of processing, maybe reprocessing. Of course, Sweden could also develop that, itself, but it's a very costly endeavor. Before the invasion in 2022, this worked fairly well across Europe, and that also includes Russia. Now we have a rupture of this sort of thing, and changes in this system will happen, but they will take a lot of time, and a lot of time I'm talking about at least five years, or even more. I mean, a fuel assembly can be in a reactor about roughly about five years, maybe four, but roughly about that time. And you cannot simply reconfigurate everything. You can do that, but it's a long and costly process. And since Europe is also in a, well, I would still call it an energy transition phase, we're talking about the climate crisis and so on, I'm not sure that there's the political will to put that much investment in. On the other hand, I think um, it will also not go back as it was before. Um, especially Western European countries, they will be very weary to work with Russia. So there will be a rupture. And this rupture is not only in the nuclear sphere. It also is um, in regard to the import of fossil fuels, of gas and oil, but also the decoupling of electricity grids. And that explicitly refers to the Baltic countries who actually cut ties with Russia and firmly integrated themselves with European grids or northern grids. The problem here being that lots of electricity actually came from the Russian side. So now these countries face um, high energy costs, but energy costs are also on the rise in all of Europe. So this is a very complex situation. I think there will be some form of trade with Russia once this war is over. If we look in history, um, that was actually always the case. The Soviet Union always traded with the West since the beginning, actually. And now we have um, a Russia which is pretty much isolated. And you, you have been talking about the turn towards China. Yeah, we already see that. Russia has turned fully towards China. Also to India, to the BRICS countries. But Russia also knows that it can only be the smaller partner here that China would dominate this situation. And I always find this very interesting because historically Russia and China have been enemies, brutal enemies for centuries. And I'm 
still a little bit, I, I think the common enemy here is NATO and the US. So this is why they can cooperate that well. But I'm not so sure that they are really doing this full-heartedly. But they have no other option because they have to sell their um, their resources. It's the major form of income. And if the West is not buying it or not reliably buying it, it has to sell it to the East. There is no other option. And regarding your question, if, if this war is over, it depends, of course, on the outcome. Russia will gain some territory. That's at least my personal opinion. But it will cost everyone, like both Ukraine, especially Ukraine, but also Russia, a lot for that. So Russia will be weakened. Russia suffers from a brain drain. Lots of people have left Russia. Lots of university uh, employees, students, and so on. Um, Russia is also facing a very stern demographic crisis. Um, lots of people are also dying now, of course, in the war. All things the country actually cannot really sustain. So then um, the question is, how can, how can Russia rebuild that? And then, of course, with a totally destroyed relation with the West, with Ukraine. And then the next question is this, of course, would a peace deal be a real peace deal or an armistice for a couple of years and then it starts again? for example, for the rest of Ukraine. And I think one thing that might decide that is whether Ukraine joins NATO or not. If it joins NATO, then there would be some hard-faced, hard-based security uh, guarantees. But if it does not, it faces the same situation basically again. If we turn now to the Arctic in particular, since this is a polar uh, geopolitics podcast, although I, I have to say that all these things we've talked about today are, are extremely relevant for what we talk about in this podcast, the, the geopolitics and, and Russia, of course, being such an important Arctic country. But if we turn a, a bit specifically to some of the nuclear issues in the Russian Arctic, and there's a number of them. I mean, the legacy of, of nuclear waste dumping in uh, in Novaya Zemlya is, is uh, still there. Russian submarines, the uh, the Northern Fleet in Murmansk being another. The idea of small modular reactors is something you hear quite a bit about to provide electricity in, in the Russian Arctic. Perhaps you can talk a bit about some of these, these Arctic-specific issues uh, from, from your research and understanding of, of nuclear energy in, in the Russian state. Definitely. Um, you already said very correctly that Russia is an Arctic state. I mean, look at the map and then you see that such a vast territory of Russia actually it lies within the Arctic, however you define it. And for Russia, this is also a very important frontier in a sense. It's also a very close link to the United States, to Canada. I mean, during Cold War times, in all those planning games of nuclear warfare, the Arctic played a crucial role. And it's also no coincidence, like you said, that the Arctic or the nuclear fleet is based uh, in Murmansk or parts of it in Akhangelsk, but still in, in the far north. The reason being is if you look at the map, once again, Russia, of course, has access to seas, but it's like a continuancy during Russian history to always try to get access to warm water harbors. And one reason was that this vast access to, to the ocean in the north was usually frozen all the time. But since climate change has uh, reached such proportions, this passage becomes more passable as time progresses. And there are several interests there. First, are, of course, economic. Um, Gazprom, Rosneft, um, they try to get the fossil fuels out of the seabed, basically, in the Arctic. There's, of course, also the idea of having the trade route 
going basically from China once again across the Russian Arctic and then towards the west and thus cutting basically a lot of distance, kilometers, and making it cheaper. I think we are not quite there yet. I mean, some, some cargo ships do that route, but there's still too much ice. There's still too much unforeseeable climate events there. We are seeing in some parts the melting of the permafrost um, totally changing the landscape in the Russian north for many people also who live there. And these things, they all add up. So this is a focus area for Russia. You, you also pointed to the nuclear waste dumping. This actually should be over. The Soviet Union conducted this. And in the 90s, there was also also earlier. But there, there were actually, in the 90s, we had like a period of big openness also in Russia, where also from the West, you could get a lot of material. There was the famous Yablokov report. Um, and in this report, um, there were actually lists of all the nuclear waste that was dumped. And a lot was dumped in the Arctic. You spoke about Novaya Zemlya. And here I would rather point to another issue, and that's the one of nuclear weapons testing. I think this is why the island is infamous. And lots of atmospheric nuclear weapon tests have been conducted there, also quite large ones. Our colleague Dimitri Azutov actually has worked on the fate of the uh, Nienzi people, the local population there, who also was uh, who had to, to leave the island and also suffered, of course, from the fallout. And this is a legacy that's also going on. Novaya Zemlya is still a military zone in Russia. There are no nuclear weapon tests being conducted there, up to my knowledge. Um, but it's still, of course, a highly militarized zone. It's highly contaminated. And the problem in the Arctic is, which is technically maybe also a good thing, but if you pollute it, it takes a way, way longer time, actually, for it to dissolve or to spread away and so on, because it's colder temperatures and, um, yeah, maybe dynamics are different. And these tests have contaminated, actually, vast stretches of land, also Russian territory, the Taimur Peninsula, for example. If you look on the map, way far to the east, um, but other regions as well. And this, of course, is a problem, um, but the problem Russia does not take that serious in regard no, I think Russia's main interest in the Arctic is definitely trade and military dominance and resources. And they are pursuing this very strongly. To achieve some of these goals in the Arctic for Russia, these uh, small modular reactors, nuclear yes. reactors, is a way yeah. to furnish energy in places like, I think, Tixi and, uh, and other places, other um, Russian outposts, cities and, 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 and settlements and such. Do you, as, as an expert on nuclear energy, do you see additional risks for using this type of uh, solution. I think there, it's also been discussed in places like, I think even northern Sweden and Finland, uh, small nuclear reactors. Is this something that should be a cause for concern or is it an entirely different set of circumstances than a major facility like Zapranitia? Yeah. Two things. One is um, Russia has already started the academic Lomonosov, which is a floating nuclear power plant, small modular reactor, if you want to call it, with um, two reactors and they are currently in Pevek and they are fueling their um, electricity and heat heating needs for the local population but also for mining operations there. It was basically built or put together in St. Petersburg and then they took it around the northern route and shipped it basically to Pevek and before that the Bilibino nuclear power plant provided 
um, electricity and heat there, and that was decommissioned. So this is now to show that this can be done from a Russian side. Small modular reactors are surely safer than the larger ones, commercial ones, on a very basic principle that they are smaller. Um, but they have, of course, different challenges. And the biggest one I'm seeing is that the technology is not quite there yet and that there's very little experience with them. And the question is also who builds the first one? The academic Lomonosov is a special case. It was also an economic disaster. It took way longer than it was actually planned. Um, and also it's only being... It, it, it will be at the end of the... <laughs> 2020s, it will already be decommissioned. So it has a very short lifespan. It was basically just to show it can be done and that Russia does it. Um, but apart from that, I'm not seeing a concrete example of a Russian small modular reactor being um, really planned um, of the size of, let's say, 50 megawatts to 100 megawatts in the Arctic. It is, of course, an intriguing thought to have such an in installation. You can you don't have to, to transport all that fossil fuel into the Arctic to, to provide heating and electricity, only very limited amounts of uranium, and they last you quite a long time, sure. Um, but as it is now, small modular reactors are not economic, and they can only be economic if you um, build them in a large series. So let's say 10, 15, maybe 20. And then the question is, who builds the first one? Because that person has to put in a lot of more money than the subsequent ones. And although Russia puts a lot of resources into its nuclear development, with the war going on, I do not think that this can be a priority for Russia. Maybe there will be a research reactor or something, but I don't think there will be a large deployment of small modular reactors at the moment. I mean, Russia is, as we've talked about here, is a major Arctic state and uh, with major Arctic uh, economic and security interests. And also, I think, a big part of uh, the Russian identity, their own self-perception uh, as, as an Arctic country and as a people. But as you say, I mean, there is limited resources and you're conducting a major war and have many yeah. other societal challenges, demographics and so forth. I mean, how much resources will there be for, for Russia's Arctic future, of course, it's a source of income as well because of the, the fossil fuels and all the rest. But do you think that the Russia can sustain for, for years and decades to come major investments to develop the Northern Sea Route, to develop modular reactors, to develop all these other you know, military installations up in the Arctic? Do you see this as, as something that could basically uh, run out of resources to continue this trend? Yeah, so Russia works in that way differently than, let's say, Sweden, for example, because if you look at the Swedish state, a big source of income is taxpayers' money. So it's basically taxes that fund the Swedish state. And in Russia, it's resource extraction, which is mostly state-owned, like Gazprom, Rosneft, Rosatom. They are all state-owned, more or less, companies. And when they make a profit, the state makes a profit. And that's a major difference. Then the state distributes money towards its citizens. There are also taxes, of course, but they are not that important for the Russian state. The resource extraction, that's the major uh, fuel of their economy. We cannot underestimate the amount of corruption in Russia. You can roughly count, but of course I cannot, I don't have sources on that. 
But if you look at, for example, Sochi, when um, the, for the Olympic Games, when that was planned and built, we, we see a loss of money there on about one third to a half of overall costs that just disappear. So Russia is a very, in that regard, an inefficient state. So even if the Kremlin decides to do something, it usually has to put in lots and lots of more resources than actually needed to get it done, if it gets done at all. And the reason is that for many people, life in Russia is very hard. There are lots of poor people, like really poor people. And you simply have to do certain things to survive, to organize your survival. And the reason why Putin was very successful in being popular with the Russian population, especially from 2000 to 2010-ish, I mean, he stepped down in quotation marks, in 2008 until 2012, when Medvedev took over for a time. But now we know, of course, that was just a, a switch in faces, but nothing really in the power structure. But people were happy with him because he demanded from state companies, but also from the oligarchs' companies, to at least divert parts of their income to the normal population so that living standards got better. And they got better. They got substantially better. If you look in the 90s, that was a total crisis for Russia with partially, for example, if you were a teacher, you could go without a wage for six months because the state simply couldn't pay it. Or, yeah, and also, of course, the whole uh, availability of goods and how do you pay for them, hyperinflation and all these sort of things. And Putin stabilized all that. And life in general got better. But now, of course, Putin has turned more to this imperial life mindset and, and prioritizes like things like Ukraine higher than that. And that's a mismatch. And the question is, how much can he actually drain the normal population until there will be a critical point? Linking once again that he's afraid of like a Euromaidan in Moscow, for example. That's the question. And I think with uh, the emigration of so many Russians, uh, also fleeing the war, fleeing mobilization, um, we already see the cracks in the system. So right now the life is not getting better anymore in Russia, also for ordinary Russians. So coming back to your questions, well, if he disregards the total interest in the population, I think he can fund, as long as fossil fuels keep flowing, he can fund his development of the Arctic. He can do that. As, as long as people are buying that and China will buy that and also other countries like India, um, maybe Brazil, um, especially the BRICS countries. So trade, it's impossible to completely isolate Russia. I think that has been shown by the sanction policies of the West. Um, he can continue to do that. The limiting factor will be, can he stay in power if the Russian population suffers so much? But sometimes people say that Russians are willing to suffer because of this this uh, need to have this great power status, yeah. to have this status in the world. So that's actually worth something. To actually, that, that's what underpins Putin's support is the fact that Russians want that. Is that. Do you think that's true or is that just a myth? I can, of course, not speak for, for Russians as I'm not Russian myself. Just an observation, a personal observation. This argument holds certain sway, definitely. Um, and it's also a very appealing one if you think of an independent sort of thing. Like Russia is not dependent on anyone. 
At least that's the perception, right? It has its own resources, has a vast country. It can also sustain itself and so on and so on. That's maybe in detail not true, but like the perception like, like that definitely is like that. And Putin also cultivates that image. Um, if you look into Russian media, they are not talking about fighting Ukraine. They are talking about fighting NATO. They are saying that the special military operation is basically stalling because they are not only fighting the armed forces of Ukraine, but all the NATO countries would already be fighting there, more or less. So it's also this idea of being attacked from all kind of sides and having to be strong. So that does hold a certain sway. But now in a more realistic point of view, I'm skeptic. Like, this is not a decisive argument because my question would be, what can you actually do as a Russian citizen? Let's face it, most regards, people are powerless to change things. And I'm not sure that, for example, the other day I was watching Russian news and there was the Russian day, a national day, celebration day, and so many, you know, showing your flag and Russia is so great and so on. Yeah, but I, I don't think that most people actually believe that or anything. Some people might, but that's what I mean. Like the Soviet Union had an idea. There was an ideology behind it. And, of course, people could say that's dysfunctional and so on, but there was something. Putin has no idea. He's not trying to fill exactly what you meant with great power thinking or, like, global superpower, uh, national pride. He's trying to fill the void with that because he actually has to offer very little. That's his problem. Well, Hakim, this has been a fascinating discussion. I learned a lot about Russia in many ways and about the the nuclear aspects of this uh, conflict in Ukraine, uh, the water and the indivisible water and nuclear issues uh, with this particular issue with the uh, Karkova Dam destruction and the uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Very much related to your PhD dissertation, which we look very much forward to uh, later this year, I suppose, as it uh, will be beginning published. Beginning of next. Beginning early of early next. next year. We'll be sure to, uh, to to promote that here on this podcast when it does arrive. Thank you. And uh, we'd love to have you back at some point because certainly... As you say, we're we're looking at several months of maybe safety, but then after that, there is a, a major uncertainty as to what will happen at the, this nuclear power plant at Zaporizhia. So we'll we'll certainly stay in touch with you, Akim, and uh, thank you for joining us here on the podcast. Great discussion. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.